I'm not anybody's favorite teacher, and I'm not an old folky whose insight led to a memorable hit single. I'm just a schnook. And hi, this is Sean with chapter eight of Autobiography of a Schnook. Thank you for listening. I hope you are okay. As for me, I'm kind of tired, actually. The weather's been improving here, so I've been getting on my bike as much as I can. And the commute to work is really making my legs rebel against me. Uh, But hey, I guess it's a sign that uh, my body is trying to get in better shape. So I guess that's good. And as of about 24 hours prior to this recording, there was a new mayor elected here in Chicago. The general election happened earlier this year with a lot of candidates. Now, there's a rule in Chicago that the winner of the mayoral election is the candidate who gets at least 50% of the vote. And if no candidates get at least 50%, then there has to be a runoff between the top two candidates. For the second mayoral election in a row, Chicago had to invoke that rule. We had to do that the first time. In fact, I think the first time in Chicago history that that rule was put into effect was in 2015, when the runoff was between incumbent Rahm Emanuel and Chewy Garcia. This year, the election was going to be historical, no matter the outcome, because the two candidates in the runoff election were black women. Chicago has had black mayors before. There was Harold Washington, and then after he unexpectedly died in office, Eugene Sawyer took over. And Chicago has also had a female mayor before, Jane Byrne. Now Chicago will have a black female mayor, specifically Lori Lightfoot. She won the election. She won by a landslide, actually. She won every single district, but sadly with a pretty low voter turnout. But I think she got something like 75% of the vote. And just to add more to the historicness, really? Come on, red squiggle, go away. Historicness is a word. Look it up in your Chicago Manual of Style. But adding to the historicness, she will be the first mayor of Chicago who's openly gay. I don't think that ever happened before. In fact, I'm pretty sure that never happened before. So what does this mean for the future of Chicago? I don't know. I don't know. I can't predict the future. We'll see what happens and what doesn't happen. And uh, I don't know. But uh, getting away from that now, oh, I have mentioned before in this podcast that I'm a huge fan of Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas, and I got the soundtrack album for Christmas and love it, love it, love it, love it. And unfortunately, I did not get to uh, any record stores on Record Store Day this year, partly because I was away for uh, Thanksgiving, but I finally was able to get the vinyl release of the Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas soundtrack album. I paid a lot more for it than what I wanted to pay for it, but I didn't really have much choice, (laughs) given that vendors buy up all the record store day records and then resell them at inflated prices. I was actually able to talk the guy down pretty significantly, though. But I gotta say, I was not happy with the vinyl release. For one thing, the sound quality isn't all that great, the equalization could have been better. It could have been a little bit more treble, a tiny bit more bass. The CD actually sounds better. And also, the record wasn't 
pressed right. It was like off center. I noticed that side one had a little bit of uh, what they call flutter and wow. Those of you who aren't extremely turntable literate, flutter is when the record playback kind of sounds like it speeds up a little and then wow is when it slows down. And if you hear that, it means either your turntable's not working correctly or the record has a problem with it, like a warp or something. Like you'll hear the pitch of the music kind of increase and decrease. And there was a little bit of that on side one, but my ears are very sensitive to that, but it wasn't enough to take away my enjoyment of it. But side two, however, was a different story. Side two, I could hear a lot of, well, flutter and wow, a lot of fluctuation in tone and speed. And I noticed when I looked at the tone arm that it was moving back and forth a lot, which it shouldn't be doing. And something else I noticed was that when the record was on the turntable, well, my turntable, it's an Audio-Technica LP120, which a lot of vinyl enthusiasts call a budget turntable. I'd like to, I'd love to have that kind of budget if that's what a budget turntable is. <laughs> Wasn't exactly cheap. But one of the features of it, it has a stroboscopic light on it. What it does is it shines a light on the platter and there are dots on the platter. And if the dots look like they're not moving at all, even though the platter's spinning, it means that the platter is spinning at the correct speed and very constantly, so you shouldn't hear any flutter and wow. But I noticed that when the record was on it, though, I noticed that the dots were ever so slowly moving a little bit forward with the rotation of the platter. First, I thought it was a problem with the turntable, but I put a different record on and everything was fine. Man, that was really upsetting. Um, I contacted the record label. I don't know how it's pronounced. I'm guessing Varez Sarabanda. I could be wrong about that. And I said, look, the I think side two is pressed off center. Can I send it in for a replacement? And they got back to me and said, well, that was a record store day release. So you have to actually go through the vendor. We don't handle them once they're out. And I was like, oh, crap. So I reached out to the guy who sold me the record. I said, do you have any more? I'd love to swap this. He's like, no, unfortunately, I don't. That was my only one. So eh. so I'm kind of at a loss. I don't know what to do about that. I don't know if I should just sell it off to somebody who doesn't mind the flutter and wow, or if I should just keep it, knowing that I'm not going to play the thing. I don't know. But, oh, well. Um, so what else is going on in my life? Ooh. I'm going to Midwest Gaming Classic soon. I've mentioned before that I'm a classic video game enthusiast, especially old arcade games from the 80s. And in fact, my other podcast, Pie Factory Podcast, is specifically dedicated to arcade games from the 80s, basically. And my co-host Jim and I, were going to promote the podcast. We're actually going to have a table in the vendor hall. And uh, that's the weekend of April 12th, is it? I don't even know what today is. Jeez. Yeah, April 12th, 13th, and 14th in downtown Milwaukee at the Wisconsin Center. It's usually a fun time, even though we usually spend most of the time just hanging out by the table. It's fun to meet people and see uh, friends of ours who happen to attend and walk around sometimes and see what else is going on. So. Uh, let's see, Sven Gulli, who's a local hero here, he's going to be judging a cosplay contest. And uh, what's is it Ernie Hudson? Is that his name? The guy from Ghostbusters? He's going to be there. And I don't know what else. I've been too busy to follow what's going on. So I got that coming up. 
And I do want to kind of address some feedback I got about uh, the previous chapter. Chapter, I don't even remember what chapter. Oh, it must be chapter seven because this is chapter eight I'm talking about now. Specifically, the segment I called The Death of the Mad Russian. The Death of the Mad Russian about my grandfather who wasn't exactly the nicest person in the face of the earth by any means. I'm just going to kind of address this generically, uh, if you will. But one question was asked, was it possible that it's just maybe how your grandfather was raised, that he was the way he was? And because my grandfather was Russian, I think some people might have thought that he was perhaps born in Russia and raised on very strict Russian standards. Well, he was actually born in Chicago. His parents immigrated from Russia, I think in the late 1800s or from Minsk. And um, my grandmother also, she was born in Chicago as well. And her parents came over from Lithuania, also in the late 1800s. And the thing is, it's one thing to be raised in a pretty strict, stoic family and having that kind of attitude, but it's another to, say, get ragingly drunk and beat the shit out of your kids. So I don't think his upbringing has anything to do with it. And another thing... I didn't really know much of his family very well. Basically, his parents died when my mom was still a kid, and I didn't know all of his siblings. But from what I'm told, my grandfather was kind of the odd one out. Everybody else in his family was apparently wonderful. I've heard that they were all amazingly nice people. I can account for my grandfather's brother, George. I saw Uncle George at all the family gatherings. He was a really super nice guy, absolutely, by all means. And uh, his sister, Julie, she's a nice lady, too. She was really nice. So, yeah, it's it's just the way he was. That's all there is to it. So that whole feature was kind of dedicated to my mother's family. What about my dad's? Well, that's another story. I don't know much about his side of the family. He once told me that his side is English, French, and Irish. And from what my mom tells me, he doesn't really want to talk about his side of the family. I guess there's some history there that he's not proud of. I honestly don't even think he knows who his father was. And his mother died when he was a little kid and he was raised by an aunt. I'm still trying to figure out a way to just kind of smoothly ask dad about uh, some of his family history. Because I really want to know. I really do want to know. And uh, sorry for the abrupt transition, but hey, I got an email from a listener named Tim. He says, hi, Sean. Hi, Tim. I have a story about the time I met Billy Gibbons in Dusty Hill. Oh, by the way, this is undoubtedly prompted by my tech support story about the year that I worked at Sharp Electronics and one of my coworkers took a call from Billy Gibbons. And those of you not in the know, Billy Gibbons and Dusty Hill are from ZZ Top. But Tim goes on to say, back in 2002, I was head projectionist at the local movie theater. Part of the job was putting together the large cardboard standees in the lobby. One afternoon, a coworker and I were doing just that when I heard a voice behind me. Now that looks like fun. Turning around, I did not expect to see Billy Gibbons and Dusty Hill standing there. I froze. I don't remember exactly what I said, but asked how the movie was. Great, one of them said. Then I asked what they saw. Spider-Man, have you guys seen it yet? Billy replied. Yes, it's awesome. I'm glad you liked it. After that, they wished us a good day and left. I couldn't believe I just talked to ZZ Top. Turns out they had a concert that night at a local casino. It was such a quick moment, but one I'll always remember. I hope you and listeners enjoyed my story. 
I was inspired to tell it thanks to your show. Well, thank you. I'm looking forward to hearing the next chapter. Thank you so much, Tim. That was great to hear from you. And yeah, it is, it is so cool to hear about people with their encounters with famous people and their pleasant encounters. Uh, I don't know how famous this counts, but I remember one of the times that my wife and I saw Brian Wilson at the Beacon Theater. In fact, I think it was one of those two concerts that we went to in November 2006, and I mentioned in, uh, was it chapter one? Yeah, chapter one. We were on our way out of the theater, and my wife was carrying a Beatles purse, and somebody walked past us and said, hey, that's a nice looking purse. Here's a button you can put on it. This is the band that I'm in, and it was a button that said Fab Foe. I said, yeah, I've heard of you guys. I've never actually heard you perform, but I've heard nothing but amazing things about your guys. I'm really looking forward to hearing you someday. And, um, we just chatted for very, very briefly, just for a few seconds. And a couple of days later, I realized, wait a minute, that was Will Lee from the CBS orchestra. It's from Letterman's band. So yeah, that's, that's a brief encounter that I had before. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure so many of us have those kind of stories. It is, it is pretty cool to, uh, to have that. Or there, there was another time, it was either 2006 or 2007 when my wife and I were at Beetlefest at the, uh, Hyatt Regency O'Hare in Rosemont. We, our hotel was actually at a different hotel. So we were leaving the current hotel we were in to go over to Beetlefest. And we walked right past this guy who was a dead ringer for Horatio Sands from Saturday Night Live. Didn't say a thing. I did not say a thing. But after we walked past him, I just looked at Lisa and I thought, I didn't say this at all, but I thought that guy looked like Horatio Sands. But Lisa turned to me and said out loud, I know, isn't that weird? It's like she heard what I was thinking. And of course we found out that it was Horatio Sands. He and Fred Armisen happened to be at the, uh, the fest that year. But again, thank you, Tim. Thank you for the feedback. And, uh, let's see, I heard from PJ Steele who says, I just had to tell you this after hearing you talk about the beach boys on multiple podcasts, <laughs> PJ, guess what? There's going to be one more. <laughs> I took your advice and gave them a shot. I'm glad I did. Considering I listen to mostly thrash metal. It's quite different to what I typically listen to, but man, are those harmonies good listening to it almost makes you think sunny summer days are right around the corner, but this is Pittsburgh. So there's always at least a 45% chance of rain every day between now and November. Great stuff. And uh, PJ, thanks for that uh, comment there. I do appreciate that. That was very kind of you to take the time to uh, to send me that little comment. Um, I'm going to be honest. It's not really my goal to convert anybody or necessarily make people listen to anything in particular. If you are inspired to by listening to this podcast, then wonderful, wonderful. It's more like it's just kind of an outlet for me because music is a big part of my life, as I mentioned before, and I just need to talk about it. So there you have it. And again, because my original intention back about five years ago was to do a Beach Boys podcast. Well, it never happened, but this kind of helps me make up for it a little bit. So I think that's about all that I have um, in terms of feedback from listeners. Thank you all. You can reach out to me at autobio at schnookpodcast.com over email. And there's also a Facebook page. And I'm on Instagram and, um, what's the other one? <laughs> Twitter, Twitter. And my Instagram and Twitter handle is schnook podcast, quite simply. And having said all that right now, I wish to honor the 64th birthday today. The day I'm recording this April 3rd is that 64th birthday of someone who unfortunately is not here to celebrate. 
I'll have to warn you, there are going to be some bleeped profanities and uh, some Catholic school triggers. April 3rd, 1955, the birthday of Patrick F. Paul, my religion, history, and reading teacher in 8th grade. At St. Pat's grade school in Joliet, he was also in charge of 8th grade homeroom. How do I know that's his birthday? Because it was actually a multiple-choice question on one of his history tests. Indeed, it wasn't exactly a tough question. Any other answer would have put him at at least 150 years old. I think somebody in the class actually sacrificed that question just to be a smartass. But, good God, it still stings thinking back to when I was at work in the summer of 2007, and my mom called me and told me she heard that he died. June 28th, liver cancer. He was 52 years old, which, from what he'd said in the past, would make him the first male in the Paul family to live to see 50. I had no idea he was sick. It was a particularly depressing day because my wife had been trying desperately to get a teaching job to no avail and had just had a fruitless interview that day. So if I wanted cheering up when I got home, it was clear I wasn't going to get it that day. You see, in all grade school, high school, and college, we're talking a grand total of six schools, Mr. Paul was, hands down, my favorite teacher. I'm sure most of the students he saw during his 27-year career would say the same thing. As I said in a previous chapter, I went to St. Pat's for 7th and 8th grades from 1986 through 1988. My class of 1988, well, classmates and I were his 10th graduating class. Before 1986, I lived in Bourbonnais, about 35 miles south of Joliet. My dad got a job in Joliet that made us move, thank God. I remember when my mom enrolled me in St. Pat's and we met with Sister Loretta, the principal. The only thing I truly remember about that meeting aside from the fact that I was one of two new students in the seventh grade named Sean, was that she mentioned one of my teachers would be Mr. Paul. Sister Loretta said, you'll like him. I guess that stuck out particularly, though, because he would be the first male teacher I ever had. My first day as a Pat Paul student was quite memorable. He asked me where I was from, and I told him that we had just moved in from Bourbonnais. And he said, well, where do you live now? And I told him on Broadway. Well, I didn't realize it back then, being pretty new to Joliet, but Broadway is quite long. So he specifically asked, well, what's your address there? And I told him, and he seemed impressed because he knew that that was right across the street from Joliet Catholic High School, or as most people called it, Catholic High. Mr. Paul was a Catholic High alum. He told me I lived in the perfect place, too, because right along that part of Broadway, there's a cliff that I believe I mentioned in a previous chapter. And that cliff overlooks Bluff Street. That cliff, by the way, was right in my backyard. Mr. Paul told me that when the snow started to fly, I could throw snowballs at passing cars on Bluff Street and just duck behind the fence and nobody would know where it came from. I never did try that. Hmm. And really, Mr. Paul was all about Joliet. He grew up in Joliet on Cagwin Avenue. He went to grade school at St. Pat's, high school at Catholic High, and college at, well... Not St. Francis and Joliet, but Lewis University in nearby Romeoville, but hey, that's close enough. He lived most of his life in Joliet, although he was one of many who uh, inexplicably relocated to Manuka, which has, well, not much. I don't know, maybe it's cheaper there? Well, actually, it's got to be cheaper there, really. But Mr. Paul even had the same phone number as an adult that he did when he was a kid, except uh, for the exchange. 
I know all this because he always told us stories about growing up in Joliet. And speaking of Joliet, many people from Joliet love to bash it. Sometimes when they write out the name of the town, the first letter is a T instead of a J because it makes the word look like toilet. Believe me, folks, those people have no idea how good they have it. Try living in Bourbon A for almost 12 years, and then I'll be very interested to see how terrible you think Joliet is. It was the freaking promised land to me. And you know what? Mr. Paul was all too happy to make fun of where I came from. Generally, people who came from anywhere in the Kankakee area, Bourbon A, Kankakee, Bradley, St. Anne, Mantino, Aroma Park, etc., they just tell people they're from Kankakee, and if you tell someone you're from Bourbon A, Bradley, St. Anne, Mantino, Aroma Park, etc., they'll say, oh, okay, so you're from Kankakee then. None of my classmates had ever heard of Kankakee, but Mr. Paul certainly did. He said it was the armpit of Illinois. I said, yeah, that's pretty accurate. He said, no, really, it actually is the armpit of Illinois. Look. And he pulled down a map of Illinois, and he showed where Kankakee was with uh, his little pointer device thingy. Here's where Kankakee is, he said. It's right in the armpit of the arm that's torn off by Lake Michigan. Yeah, Mr. Paul never let me hear the end of the Kankakee thing. All throughout seventh grade, if I said something wrong or did something stupid, he'd say, well, you're from Kankakee, you have an excuse. One time when he was going over things we needed to know for an upcoming history test, he saw that I wasn't taking notes, I wasn't writing down what he said, so he gave me a hard time about it. And while he was yelling at me, I said, but I'm from Kankakee! And hand to God, he took a breath and said, oh yeah, that's right, uh, okay, I, I understand. And then he added, but you can't use that excuse next year. Once you've been here a year, you're no longer from Kankakee, you're from Joliet, you got it? So, what would happen if I screwed up in 8th grade? Simple, I just changed my excuse. I'd say, but I used to be from Kankakee. And somehow, that seemed to work. I remember once when we all went to confession as a class. Yep, in Catholic school, sometimes you'd go to confession during the school day. As I was sitting outside the confessional booth waiting my turn, Mr. Paul came up to me and said, Do they have confessions in Kankakee yet? I said, yep. He would ask me that about everything. Do they have digital clocks in Kankakee? Do they have motorized cars in Kankakee yet? Yep, you, you get the idea. And he never, ever let me forget that. One day when I was well into my 20s and married, I happened to get an email from Mr. Paul with a subject line of, Hey, Kankakee boy. Well, since I mentioned confession, I might as well spend a bit of time on Mr. Paul and his Catholicness. Oh, shut up, red squiggly line. Catholicness is a word. Look it up in the Baltimore Catechism. He was a very devout Catholic. Shortly after he died, I read something that the new pastor at St. Pat's wrote about him. The parish pastor was essentially the teacher's boss, really, at St. Pat's. But Father Gene, I think that's his name? Father Gene said that he went to a reception and walked in on Mr. Paul having a heated argument with the principal of St. Pat's over being a practicing Catholic. The principal insisted that there are some gray areas and that you have to use your own judgment on how strictly you follow the rules, but Mr. Paul was very steadfast about how it's all black and white, you stick to the word no matter what. And Father Gene was thinking, what have I gotten myself into? Again, he was brand new to the parish. Somebody assured him that Mr. Paul and the principal were actually very good friends, but often got into some intense debate. But yeah, Mr. Paul was definitely a strict Catholic. You go to Mass every week, period. He never missed 10 a.m. Mass on Sundays. You go to Mass on the Holy Days of Obligation. 
one surprisingly thing that he was willing to bend on, and I apologize for bringing this up. This is no, I'm not putting in my own views here. I'm just repeating what he said. So no angry emails either way, please. But Mr. Paul was very, very, very agreeing with the Catholic Church's strict stance on abortion. That is murder, hands down, period. But he did make an exception for rape. He believed that you shouldn't expect a rape victim to carry that reminder in her body for nine months and then essentially have to look at the face of her rapist and be constantly reminded of that terrible incident. That was his view. Otherwise, murder, period. But I think that was the only Catholic rule that Mr. Paul was willing to bend on. Of course, if it's Lent, you better not be eating meat on Friday. So if it's a Friday during Lent and you brought meat into his classroom for lunch, you better not be Catholic or else you'd hear it from him. Oh, that reminds me, by the way, Fridays during Lent could be the bane of Mr. Paul's existence. Those of you who are not Catholic, uh, you may or may not know this, but during Lent, that is the period starting on Ash Wednesday and ending the day before Easter, you are not allowed to eat meat on Fridays. The exception is seafood. Somehow that doesn't count as meat. I don't understand that logic. And yeah, I know all the stories of how the church had an in with the fishing industry, but I'm not going to get into that right now. But at St. Pat's, we all brown bagged our lunches. There wasn't any food served at the school and we ate in the classrooms and Mr. Paul could smell tuna a mile away. And if it was a Friday during Lent, that escalated the chances of somebody bringing tuna because, well, it's Lenten compliant. But man, I still vividly remember the times we'd be having lunch in the classroom and Mr. Paul would suddenly sniff the air. (laughs) Who has tuna? Whoever brought tuna for lunch would have to sit as far in the back of the classroom as humanly possible. I particularly remember Jeff Bielam brought tuna for lunch once, and he was so small at the time that he and his desk could actually be shoved all the way back into the coat closet that was along the back wall, and the sliding door could be closed on him, completely shut, and he would have to stay in there with the sliding doors closed until he finished his tuna sandwich. (laughs) Funny thing is, now Jeff is a pretty big dude, he's over six feet tall and pretty muscular, So I don't think he and a desk could fit in that coat closet these days. But man, Mr. Paul couldn't stand tuna. And uh, well, neither can I. Just the smell gives me a terrible headache. But lasagna? If you had homemade lasagna for dinner, you damn well better bring some for him the next day. Especially if you came from an Italian family. (laughs) I come from a non-Italian family. The only lasagna we had at home as a kid was the frozen kind. I'm just thankful that I never thought to bring Mr. Paul any of that Stouffer's stuff. I'm sure he would have loudly been insulted by it. And Pat Paul was also fond of his coffee, but it had to be prepared a certain way. His designated coffee girl would go down to the faculty lounge and make him a cup of coffee in the morning. I seem to remember it was Julie Zalecki when I was in eighth grade, and Mr. Paul loved the way she made his coffee. Perfect balance of sugar and cream. And by the way, I think having a designated coffee girl kind of exposed one of his flaws. He could have kind of a sexist attitude at times in a way. He believed that girls made the best coffee. He'd have the girls go put the finishing touches on the loft in the gym because it needed, and I quote, a woman's touch after the boys would move stuff around and put stuff away. He would love to point out that 
that boys would sing from their voices in their chest, and girls would sing with their breath, and stuff like that. I know that kind of rubbed people the wrong way from time to time. But anyway, uh, back to the coffee. If uh, Julie wasn't in school for whatever reason, someone else would have to make his coffee, and uh, it just wasn't the same. But it would always be a girl. Uh, except for one day when Julie was out, though, Jeff Bealum just kind of got ticked off and said, Oh, for crying out loud, I'll go get you some coffee. Give me your cup. And just to shut him up, Mr. Paul reluctantly let him do it. And I remember when he tasted it, he practically did a spit tick. Oh, God, what's this crap? He never, ever let poor Jeff or anybody else besides Julie get him his coffee ever again. Speaking of Jeff, uh, this story is worth telling. Pat Paul was a major sports fanatic. Everything was sports. He coached basketball, football, and volleyball. He had a second job as a sports writer for the Herald News, the Joliet newspaper. He was a rabid Green Bay Packers fan. Yep, he grew up within an hour drive of Chicago, but he hated the Bears with the passion. Mr. Paul hated the Bears so much that if he had a choice between seeing his beloved Packers win or the Bears lose, he'd pick seeing the Bears lose in a heartbeat. But everybody who entered his classroom learned in a matter of moments that his favorite sports teams were for football, the Packers, for basketball, the Lakers, and for baseball, the Yankees, with the Cubs a pretty close second. In fact, he told us the story once about how when he was a kid, he went to Comiskey Park when the Yankees were playing the Sox. And man, Mickey Mantle, that was Pat Paul's idol. At one point when Mickey Mantle came up to bat, Mr. Paul yelled down to him, Hey, Mick! And Mickey turned around, smiled, and nodded at him. And that was the greatest moment of Mr. Paul's life, when Mickey Mantle acknowledged his existence. I remember when Mickey Mantle died, and uh, Mr. Paul wrote a story in the Herald News about Mickey Mantle, and he retold that story, except the way he told it in that story was that the Yankees were just taking the field before the game started, but still the Hey, Mick thing stands. But Mr. Paul's reading classes had a monthly book report assignment, and he made it no secret that he loved sports books and, by the way, hated science fiction. He said if you did a book report on a sci-fi book, you'd have to try very hard to get better than a C. But he had to approve the book before you wrote your report. And one month I chose Ron Luciano's The Umpire Strikes Back, a book that happened to be in our house for some reason. Uh, my parents were never big readers. It's the true story of an MLB umpire's crazy antics. Mr. Paul approved that in a heartbeat, and he said it's a great book. I read maybe half the book before I got bored and wrote the report based on just the half I read. My grade, A+. By the way, don't let my boredom with the book make you think I didn't like it. I actually did like it. It was quite funny. It's one thing to read a book for enjoyment, but another if you're reading it because you have to. But what does this all have to do with poor Jeff Bielum? Uh Well, I'm getting to that. You can always hit up Mr. Paul for a small loan, and he'd usually try to collect while taking roll. He'd go through names. Barrett? Here. You got the 15 cents you owe me? You get the point. Now, I'll get back to that in a sec. Mr. Paul had a little basketball backboard and a hoop on his garbage can. I'm sure you've seen those things, at least in office supply catalogs, or the brother-in-law section, as I would say, in gift shops. When he'd throw things in the garbage, he would usually just whip them across the room toward the garbage can, but rarely did he actually get the garbage through the hoop. And of course, when it fell out of the can completely, someone had to get the rebound. I'll never forget this moment in eighth grade. Mr. Paul was sitting on his stool in front of his podium in the front of the classroom. The garbage can, as usual, 
was toward the back of the room by the door. He crumpled up a piece of paper and said, hmm, let's see if I can get that in behind the back. And Jeff Bielam had to open his mouth. I'll bet you $10 you'll miss. Deal. So Mr. Paul took the crumpled piece of paper, curled his arm around his back, threw the crumpled paper, and damned if it didn't go right through the frickin' hoop. We so couldn't wait for roll call the next morning. It went exactly as we were expecting. Barrett, here. Belum, here. You got the $10 you owe me? <laughs> 10 bucks to an 8th grader back in 1988 was, well, it was practically gold. Well after I graduated, Mr. Paul told me that Jeff actually did pay up eventually. Yep, Pat Paul was a quirky guy in many regards, as you may have gathered by now. And one thing I remember in particular was that if there was a note that had to go home to parents, the usual kind of thing, parent-teacher conference notifications, PTA meeting information, upcoming school events, that kind of thing, if it wasn't in the church bulletin, they would send it home from school. The rule was, if there was more than one kid from the family enrolled at St. Pat's, then the note that was going home would be sent with the oldest student from that family. Well, the class of 1987 had twins, and Mr. Paul told us that he actually went through the trouble of finding out, as he said, who came down the chute first. So if Michelle Zorger were ever not in school, and there was a memo that had to go home to parents, Mr. Paul wouldn't let poor Brian take it home because, technically, he was not the oldest, even though they were twins. He was the one born second. Mr. Paul actually held on to that note until Michelle was back in school. Hey, rules are rules, he'd say. One peculiarity about Pat Paul is he would say the phrase Gil Bell a lot, usually after saying something pretty outrageous. I can't think of anything in particular to use as a quick example, but it might be something like, I went bowling last night and bowled a 300, Gil Bell. I heard that expression a lot in his reading and history classes in 7th grade, and I think it was finally when I was in 8th grade when I asked him about that one day. Hey, Mr. Paul, why do you say Gil Bell a lot? What does that mean? And he said, oh, I never told you about that? turned out everybody else was wondering the same thing. He said, oh, basically, if you lie on a Gil Bell, you are to never, ever be trusted again. Nobody will ever believe a word you say. So if you say Gil Bell, it means you are absolutely telling the truth, no lie, period. And uh, Mr. Paul added that uh, you also had to say Gil Bell, no variations. That did come back to haunt him one day, though. I mentioned before that he told us a lot of stories about his life. One story he told involved hanging out with a friend of his who was blind. I don't remember the details, but the story ended with his friend's pants down, literally. And the poor guy said to Mr. Paul, Boomer, look at what you did to my pants. Wait, Boomer? Naturally, we nagged him into telling us why he was called Boomer. His answer? I don't know. Oh, come on, tell us, Mr. Paul. No, really, I don't know. Oh, yeah, then say Gil Bell. So Mr. Paul very clearly and confidently said, Gilbert Bell. <laughs> Having said that, where did the phrase Gil Bell come from? Was it just something that Pat Paul and his friends would say to each other? Was it a regional expression from 60s Joliet or something? Well, not long after Pat Paul died, another St. Pat's alum excitedly posted on Facebook that she found out where the expression came from. Gil Bell was the name of one of Mr. Paul's friends. Marissa said she found that out accidentally when she met a customer where she worked named Gilbert Bell, and he went by Gil. She said, wait a minute, Gil Bell? Turns out that he and Pat Paul were great friends, and apparently Gil is a super nice guy. Personally, I was thrilled to find all this out. Another kind of quirky thing, at least as I see it, 
about Mr. Paul was his dread of age. Or aging, I guess, is more appropriate. Uh, I remember on the first day of seventh grade upon meeting me, he asked me how old I thought he was. I said, I don't know, I guess mid to late thirties? <laughs> he was actually thirty-two, and jokingly seemed insulted by my guess, but I wonder how joking it actually was. Mr. Paul was fixated on his age and just had a fear of getting old. Mrs. Samick, the seventh grade teacher, told us that she remembered the day he turned 30 and how depressed he was about being 30. I think part of it might have been because, as he told us, no males in the Paul family at that point had ever lived to see 50, as I mentioned earlier. I know that when he turned 40, his 8th graders made a huge deal out of it, going so far as to arrange a stretch limousine to take him to work. His co-workers at the Herald News made sure it got a little coverage, complete with a picture of him in the limo. But hey, speaking of birthdays, I should talk about Mr. Paul's birthday parties, the five-minute birthday party. Uh, my wife told me I absolutely need to talk about that in this segment. I learned about the five-minute birthday party well, when it was my birthday in seventh grade. My birthday is in October and happened to be the first birthday in my class. When somebody told Mr. Paul it was my birthday, that's when the party began. The Mr. Paul five-minute birthday party begins with your classmates serenading you with the traditional happy birthday song, but the you belong in a zoo variant. Mr. Paul would take a candle out of his desk drawer and light it, and you had to blow it out. It may or may not be a trick candle. It was mixed in with a few regular candles, so nobody, including Mr. Paul himself, knew whether it was a trick candle until you actually tried to blow it out. Uh, I had the trick candle. Your birthday present was a penny, uh, unless your birthday was April 3rd, his birthday, in which case you'd get a nickel. From what I'm told, he explained that fools are born on the 1st, and I don't remember the rest, but it was something about how great people are born on the 3rd, something like that. Mr. Paul would take a rubber ball, about the size of a tennis ball, uh, he'd take that out of his desk drawer and have you bounce it once. It wasn't one of those high-bouncing balls, just a standard rubber ball. And an important part of the Mr. Paul five-minute birthday party, you'd get to blow the Oscar Mayer wiener whistle. And he'd show you how you could put your finger over a couple of holes in the whistle and play a little tune. And before you blew the whistle, he would sanitize it by wiping it on the front of his shirt. When it was my birthday, I had to blow the good and fruity choo-choo Charlie whistle, though, because the Oscar Mayer wiener whistle had gone missing. It was eventually found, though, and of course properly sanitized. Also, for part of your birthday party, you got to look at Mr. Paul's treasured Bozo button. Bozo was a major thing for kids growing up in the Chicago area from the mid to late 20th century. In fact, Mr. Paul told us how he and his friends would be allowed to go home for lunch, and at home they'd watch Bozo's Circus on TV, specifically the segment called The Grand Prize Game. We're ready for more fun because right now it's time to play our Grand Prize Game! or as he and many others would call it, Bozo Buckets. It's the famous game in which a boy and a girl would throw ping pong balls in numbered buckets, and landing in bucket number six would win you and an at-home player a Schwinn bike. He told us of the one day he didn't get to see the show, but when he got back to school, his friend said, Did you see it? See what? Well, as his buddies told the story, a kid missed the bucket, prompting Bozo to say something like, Oh, that's too bad, or something like that. To which the kid responded, F*** you, bozo. Or as Mr. Paul told it, Blank you, bozo. Bozo responded, Well, that's a bozo no-no. The kid said back to him, Kiss my ass, clown. Or as Mr. Paul told it, Kiss my blank, clown. Uh, he couldn't swear in class, of course. 
But Pat Paul was no fool. He called BS on the story. Yeah, sure, guys. I believe the three of you didn't get together to play a practical joke on me. You never would. But then as the story goes, he overheard everybody else on the playground say, Did you see it? Did you see it? Wait a minute. I could buy that my friends got together and agreed to lie about the kids swearing on Bozo, but the whole school? Oh, it must have been true. Of course, that was a widespread story. I have a friend who went so far as to tell me that she knew the kid who did it and even told me his name. Uh, No, I don't remember the name she told me. According to her story, he didn't say F you or whatever. He said, cram it, clown. I got excited because years later, when I was on break at my job at the library, I checked out a couple of those bloopers albums that Kermit Schaefer put together back in the 70s, and one of them had actual audio footage of the Bozo incident. It wasn't the grand prize game, or Bozo Buckets if you prefer, but a game played later in the show. Bozo was explaining the rules and he asked a kid to move out of the way, to which the kid said, Aw, f*** off, clown. Not long after I found that record, whom did I see at the library but Pat Paul? I excitedly told him that we have audio of the Bozo show he missed, and he too was excited at the prospect of finally hearing it, so I told him what album to look out for. I don't know if he ever did listen to it, but of course I found out that the story about the kids swearing at Bozo not only was just urban legend, but actually originated in the Boston area, not the Chicago area. And most of the recordings on the Kermit Schaefer albums are actually reenactments. <sighs> oh, well. I remember the summer vacation between 7th and 8th grades. 8th grade was just around the corner, Mr. Paul's class. For some reason, I was nervous. This is Mr. Paul, the coolest teacher at the school. I have a high standard I need to live up to now. And because it's been a year, I'm not from Kankakee anymore, so I need to prove that I'm not from Kankakee. Honestly, though, it wasn't much different from being in seventh grade, except for one thing. Mr. Paul would no longer make us the butt of all jokes. He would love to make fun of seventh graders, and especially sixth graders, too. But eighth graders ruled, and he wanted to make sure of it. Eighth graders made up the student council, and he would groom student council nominees in the importance of their jobs. As eighth grade basketball coach, he would groom players to play with their hearts and to trust him as a coach, and that if you follow his instructions, you'll win games. And St. Pat's always did have a killer basketball team under his command. And as the eighth grade teacher, Pat Paul was charged with making sure we all passed the state-required tests on the United States Constitution and the Illinois State Constitution. Fail either test and you're not allowed to move beyond 8th grade. Mr. Paul took this seriously. He spent weeks prepping us. I remember the first class of Constitution test prep. The very first thing Mr. Paul told us was, number every single thing I tell you. So we all just wrote down every single thing that Mr. Paul said as an individual sentence. And every sentence we wrote down, we just put a number next to. And at the end of class... Mr. Paul would tell us what number we should be at least fairly close to, and sure enough, we were all in the ballpark. Fridays during Constitution prep would include what Mr. Paul would call Constitution football. Remember, he was a sports nut. He'd draw a gridiron on the board, and he'd put an eraser on the ledge of the board and designate that as the football. The class was split into two teams. Every time a team got a question right, the ball would advance 10 yards. Every wrong answer was a down, and after four downs, possession would turn over to the other team. Now, even though the state required that students pass constitution tests in order to advance to high school, there was no official guideline as to the format and content of the test, just so long as you can prove that you gave students the constitution test. 
The Constitution tests Mr. Paul gave us were pretty standard school tests, really. Some multiple choice, some matching, some fill in the blank. The way Mr. Paul prepped us for the Constitution tests, though, even the lowest performing kid in class, who regularly had report cards full of D's and F's, still had the lowest score in the class in the Constitution tests, but that score was a 99%, which on Pat Paul's grading scale was still an A+. And I think that was out of a possible 103, which included a couple of bonus questions, of course. Uh, man, I still remember the bonus question I missed on the Illinois Constitution test. What two towns at one time served as the state capital before Springfield? Once I got the test back, I never forgot the answer. Vandalia and Kaskaskia. Fun fact for you. Then there was graduation. Uh, that was torture. Graduation was always at the church. After all, it was a Catholic school, and there was a full mass. Mr. Paul had us practicing the procession into the church time and time again. He made a big deal about how graduation is one of the most pompous, stuck-up things ever to be invented, and we had to follow the rules. Going by memory, from the time we left the classroom to the time we got to our seats in the church pews, we had to maintain a distance of roughly 2.457 meters from each other while walking at a pace such that if anybody made it into the church within about 17 hours, it was going way too fast. We had to process slowly out the classroom door to the exit at the back of the hallway, to the back end of the parking lot where it meets the sidewalk, then follow the sidewalk to the main entrance to the church. When you reached a corner and had to turn, you had to come to a complete stop, slowly pivot your body 90 degrees, and then resume walking the rest of the 17-hour trip to the church over a distance of about 400 feet. And when we made it to our pews, we were to stare straight ahead and not move our heads. Why? Because as Mr. Paul told us, you're going to have these giant frickin' billboards on your heads. If you turn your head, everybody's going to see it. He told us, you think this is bad? This is nothing. Wait till you graduate from high school and college. It gets way more strict and ceremonial than this. <laughs> what a liar he turned out to be. On the night of graduation, it was just as pompous and stiff as we expected, with practically everybody who lived in the neighborhood watching us. Mr. Paul stationed himself on the corner of the sidewalk near the parking lot, kind of like a base coach. Most common thing I heard him say to everybody was, Ooh, nice turn. By the way, let me tell you one thing that was a tradition at St. Pat's graduation. I don't know if this was Pat Paul's creation or if it's just something that happened from somebody else. I don't know. But at some point during the Mass, I think it was after communion, there would be a slideshow of pictures from the past eight years, going way back to first grade, of course. Meanwhile, up in the choir loft, the seventh graders would sing The Way We Were. Yeah, I know. Good grief. The intent simply was to make the 8th graders a big sobbing mess. Did it make me a big sobbing mess? No, it just made me roll my eyes. Uh, not while Pat Paul was looking. One thing you learned early on is you do not roll your eyes around him. He will get pissed and think it's about him, even if it's not about him. And at the end of the school year was the annual 8th grade class trip to Great America, the Six Flags Park off Interstate 94 that's equidistant between downtown Chicago and downtown Milwaukee. Mr. Paul was an absolute nut for roller coasters. He was especially excited about a new coaster that just opened, the Shockwave. The Shockwave boasted two loops, three corkscrews, a batwing, 170 feet in height, and a maximum speed of 65 miles an hour. Oh, he couldn't wait to ride that thing. 
I remember that day at Great America when I was walking past the American Eagle, which is another roller coaster that at one point had broken height and speed records in the past. I saw Pat Paul running out of the exit from that roller coaster with a freakishly huge smile on his face, and then he ran right back in line to ride it again. I never knew the guy could run so fast. I didn't mention this yet, but he had a somewhat prominent beer belly. But man, when it came to roller coasters, he found the speed quickly. Now, I know I'm jumping around a bit, but when you became a student of Pat Paul's, you would learn his vocabulary. For one thing, there was the bimbo box. That was what other teachers would normally call a lost and found box or something. If you left a folder or a pair of sunglasses in his classroom, chances are it would end up in the bimbo box. I remember one day when I was in seventh grade and I forgot something in his classroom. And, uh, well, the next day, Mr. Paul was out and Sister Marguerite was subbing for him. Uh, by the way, I believe Sister Marguerite was so old that she was actually long dead, but they just dug her back up and made her substitute for Pat Paul. But I had to go to his classroom first thing in the morning and had to explain to Sister Marguerite that I needed to check the bimbo box for something I left in the room the previous day. That was uh, kind of awkward. <laughs> If I remember correctly, the bimbo box was located next to his Abraham Lincoln bank, uh, the bank in which you would deposit coins through a slot in the back of his head. Uh, too soon? Then there was Holy Farmers. That was also in the Pat Paul vocabulary. What was Holy Farmers? That was Holy Family, a Catholic school and parish across town on Larkin Avenue, down the street from St. Francis Academy, which would later become Joliet Catholic Academy. I have no idea why he always said holy farmers. There wasn't a farm within miles. It was probably just trash talk. I mean, besides, we always beat their asses in basketball. The next Pat Paul vocabulary term I'd like to go over is dirty scum. When it came time to collect homework, if your homework was more than one page, Mr. Paul would pass around a stapler. When it got to you, if it ran out of staples and a staple didn't come out, you would be branded a dirty scum. That was the rule. If the stapler ran out of staples a second time during the same pass around, the poor sap with the empty stapler would be labeled a double dirty scum. I remember once I barely missed being a dirty scum. I got the last staple, so the guy behind me, I think it was Ed Clark, I might be wrong about that, but the guy behind me ended up being the dirty scum. But then after he was branded dirty scum, my staple popped out of the paper. Had it come loose at the time I still had the stapler, I would have had to restaple only to find the stapler empty. Mr. Paul said the staple gods were trying to tell me something. And then there was the Mr. Paul Ultra Luxury Cruise Liner, which was, well, his car. It was a brown Cadillac. It was actually a pretty sweet car, at least from my standpoint. I got to ride it in a few times. What stuck out for me was the car stereo. Whoa, sound is coming out of the doors. You see, my parents' cars never had a stereo. It was just AM radio on the dashboard. Was the Mr. Paul Ultra Luxury Cruise Liner his dream car? No, he always wanted a Mercedes. As far as I know, he never did get that dream car, at least nothing beyond a model that I believe was purchased at Walt's Hobby Shop. Then there was the Frank Watkins Memorial Study Corner. If you misbehaved, Mr. Paul might tell you to go to the Frank Watkins Memorial Study Corner, which was the southwest corner of the classroom. It was named after a former student named, of course, Frank Watkins. Frank wasn't dead, but he was well known for being, well, not the best student, to say the least. He'd never do his work, and apparently he was such a problem student that he wasn't even allowed to go on the 8th grade class trip or even graduation. They actually mailed him his diploma. But from what others in his class told me since, Mr. Paul never, ever gave up on Frank. 
Unfortunately, though, Frank later got mixed up in gangs, and in 1992, he was murdered in a drive-by shooting. I don't know if Mr. Paul continued to refer to that corner of the classroom under Frank's name after Frank was killed, but I was told that probably one of the first things Mr. Paul did when it was his turn to cross to the other side was smack Frank in the back of the head and then give him a big hug. That's the kind of guy Pat Paul was. He wouldn't be the least bit shy about calling out your faults, even in front of the entire class, but he would always have faith in you. He always cared. And it really hit me how much Mr. Paul cared about his students when I last saw him, which was December 2005. Back then, I was living in New Jersey, but my wife and I were in town for our annual Christmas visit with my family. St. Pat's would have an annual craft fair before Christmas, and Lisa wanted to check it out. As we were leaving, who pulls up but Pat Paul and his nut Mercedes? I was thrilled because Lisa said she wanted to meet him someday after all the stories I'd told her. We shook hands and Mr. Paul commented, ooh, great handshake. That was a Pat Paulism right there. He'd always say that, ooh, great handshake. I think he liked to take credit for students having a good firm handshake. So I said, this is my wife, Lisa, and ever the smartass, Mr. Paul said, she has to live with you? You mean Saint Lisa. And he said, come on in, let's chat. So we went into room 14, his classroom, his entire career. The classroom was still exactly as I remembered it, except that, uh, as Lisa pointed out, the world map now showed Russia instead of USSR. Yeah, the Soviet Union had been dissolved for years, but neither one of us was still used to not seeing USSR on a map. But as we were swapping stories back and forth, I noticed that Mr. Paul remembered everybody from my class, and he still remembered where every single one of us sat. And he was currently in the middle of his 27th year of teaching. Wait, did I say he had a 27-year career earlier? Uh, oops, I meant 29. Sorry about that. But that was something. Part of me wants to think that it was that my class was so memorable. But another part of me says that he cared that much about every one of his students that he remembered those details. And probably the same details about every single class he ever taught. Probably it was a little bit of both. I mean, St. Pat's did mean a lot to him. He went to school there. He went to church there. Heck, he was even buried in St. Pat's Cemetery. Years after she graduated, another St. Pat's alum asked Mr. Paul why he stayed at St. Pat's for so long when he could easily make much better money teaching at a public school. He told Marissa that his mother always said that if you ever find a job in which it feels like you're not actually going to work but just going to, say, a second home, never, ever leave it. To Pat Paul, St. Pat's wasn't a job. It was home. And I guess we students were his second family, perhaps his extended family. He was insanely proud of his kids, Megan and Kevin, as any good parent should be. But he was proud of us students as well. And as I record this, I see that I've been going on for quite a long time and I'm nowhere near done. There's just so much to say about Pat Paul. But anything further will just have to wait. One thing I don't know to this day, though, where that nickname Boomer comes from. He refused to tell us, and every mention I saw of him in the Herald News after he died referred to him as Boomer. Speaking of the Herald News, the last story he ever wrote as a sports writer was in January of 2007. The topic of his story? His outrage that the Chicago Bears were in the Super Bowl. If he knew that was going to be the last story he ever wrote, I'm sure he died proud knowing that he went out disparaging the monsters of the midway. Yet, he was this Bears fan's favorite teacher, Gil Bell. 
I mentioned how Pat Paul was very proud of his kids. He loved his family very much, and I'm sure he still does on the other side, as it were. I remember how beaming he was when his daughter Megan was born, and his wife Karen was a great source of pride as well. One thing Mr. Paul made very clear to us was how much he loved his mother-in-law, too. She lived across the street from the school, I remember. (laughs) How Pat Paul can you get marrying within the St. Pat's neighborhood? But one thing I know would absolutely make him extremely proud. On April 2nd, 2019, his son Kevin was elected to the Joliet Park Board. Kevin basically wants to make sure that kids, including his and other kids, have a safe, clean place to play and proper funding for good facilities for them to use. And damn it, that's a hell of a way to observe his dad's birthday. Man, how can you, how better can you do that? There will be more about Pat Paul in later episodes, but I will add that he did expose me to some pretty cool music, unwittingly helping me expand my horizons beyond listening to just the monkeys and the Beatles. Because, of course, he had a sense of humor, uh, he had a couple of Alan Sherman records in his collection, and as the occasion required, he'd pull some of those Alan Sherman records out and play selections to go along with our history lessons. I particularly remember hearing America's a Nice Italian Name, and from the My Son the Nut album, You Went the Wrong Way, Old King Louie. And hearing those songs prompted me at my next public library trip to check out a couple of Alan Sherman records that they had. I remember during the time that we covered World War I, Mr. Paul had borrowed a stereo record player from another teacher. He took the two speakers and spread them across the classroom as far as he could, and he turned the lights out, and he had us listen to several species of small furry animals gathered together in a cave and grooving with a pict from Pink Floyd's Umagumma album. It reminded me of Revolution 9 from the Beatles' White Album. But why did he have us listen to this odd Roger Waters track? It was because he wanted us to get a feel for what the soldiers experienced in the forests of Europe. He thought that that audio collage sounded a lot like a forest, I guess. And up until then, the only Pink Floyd I really knew was a few select cuts off of the wall. Mr. Paul told us how then four-year-old Kevin would air guitar along to Satisfaction on WCKG. And he talked about how cool it was that the Rolling Stones started You Can't Always Get What You Want with a Boys Choir. I said, I've never heard this song. And he said, well, check your parents' record collection. It's probably in there. (laughs) He had no idea how lame my parents' musical tastes are. According to a questionnaire that uh, Pat Paul filled out for the school newspaper, his favorite bands were The Who, The Doors, and Steely Dan. Well, I guess two out of three ain't bad. Uh, I'll let you guess what I consider the third to be. (laughs) At that time in my life, I had no idea who did this song called Wouldn't It Be Nice?, that Mr. Paul would sometimes make a pun out of. And I guess that'll be my strategic transition into music for schnooks. Wouldn't It Be Nice is a song from the Beach Boys' 1966 album, Pet Sounds. For music for schnooks, I have kind of a combination topic going on here involving another song from Pet Sounds and a musical legend whom we recently lost. I call this segment Dick Dale, The Beach Boys, and The Sloop John B. Myth. I'm going to forewarn any diehard Beach Boys fans listening to this edition of Music for Schnooks. I will be introducing a rather controversial theory. Well, it might only actually qualify as a hypothesis at best, but uh, whatever it is, 
That's what it is. I'm not trying to change history. I'm just making an observation. Maybe it'll make you think. I don't know. Maybe it'll make you think, what's this jerk talking about? But before I get into that, I want to make one thing clear. The Beach Boys' big surfing hits were not surf music. They were songs about surfing. And let's be fair, all the songs they ever did that had anything to do with surfing were a drop in the bucket when you compare it to their entire 60s catalog alone, let alone what they released in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and beyond. Really, true surf music is instrumental. Powerful drums syncing nicely with the bass, and heavily reverbed chiming electric guitars ideally Fender, Jaguars, Stratocasters. Music that makes you feel like you're riding the perfect wave, or even music that makes you feel like you've just been surfing and uh, now you're just chilling. Did the Beach Boys ever do true surf music? Actually, yes, they did, but not much. Not much at all. And they weren't the best at it by far. But perhaps the strongest track on their debut album, Surf and Safari in 1962, is a cover of Moondog, which many surf music historians consider to be the first ever surf instrumental. On the Beach Boys' second album, 1963's Surf in USA, there are several surf instrumentals, including one of the first ever tracks ever credited entirely to Carl Wilson, a hard-rocking track called Surf Jam. There's another original, a great track called Stoked, that's strangely credited to Brian Wilson. Uh, I say strangely because Carl Wilson's lead guitar drives the track, and it sounds kind of highly improvised. But Brian's primary instrument was and still is piano, so it's unlikely he would use a piano to write a surf instrumental with a lot of string bends and things. The only thing I can think of is that he got sole credit simply for writing the main repeating motif. There's also a very respectable cover of Bill Doggett's 1956 R&B instrumental called Honky Tonk, but done in a very convincing surf style. But then you have two instrumentals that absolutely need to be addressed, Miserloo and Let's Go Trippin', both covers of classics by Dick Dale and his Deltones. I think it was a rule in California that if you were in a band and you lived within 20 miles of the Pacific, Miserloo had to be in your repertoire, because everybody covered it thanks to Dick Dale, who added it to his surf repertoire literally as a bet. I think the story is that someone bet him that he couldn't do a complete song based on only one guitar string. So he took the 1927 Greek song and turned it into a supercharged surf guitar classic that became ubiquitous among West Coast surf music culture. The Beach Boys version, specifically a remake of the single version, was decent, but not great. An alternate version closed side one of Dick Dale's 1962 album, Surfer's Choice. This version had violins making seemingly random appearances in the tune, and it was rechristened Miserloo Twist. Let's Go Trippin' closed side two of the album, although the Beach Boys version was much faster. And the version they recorded for the 1964 Beach Boys concert album was even faster than that, and in my opinion, is the definitive version of that track. And yeah, I know, it's blasphemy to say that a cover of a Dick Dale tune is the definitive version. And uh, guess what? Uh, I'm going to do it again. As far as I'm concerned, the Bobby Fuller 4 did the ultimate version of Miserloo, which combined Dick Dale's arrangement of Miserloo with Dick Dale's arrangement of Hava Nagila. Find me a better version than that. I dare ya. Having said that, though, Dick Dale is one of my musical heroes. 
he quickly went from relatively unknown to me status to hero status one summer at the crow's nest tent sale. Wait, what? You've never heard of the crow's nest tent sale? Oh, it's crow's nest you've never heard of. Well, that tells me that, number one, you're not from the Joliet area, and number two, you don't recall me mentioning that store in a previous episode, which I did, by the way. But Crow's Nest was the place for all your pre-recorded music needs for many years. They were located on Plainfield Road in Crest Hill. For a time, they also had a location in Chicago. I never went to that location, but from what I heard, it was nothing compared to their main store in Crest Hill. Sadly, the beloved store closed down in late 2005 and was replaced with a second-hand children's clothing store. Crow's Nest had a huge selection and reasonable prices. You could get records, tapes, CDs, posters, and various paraphernalia, um, the latter of which caused a bit of a controversy sometime in the 90s. Um, I guess selling tiny things that resembled crack pipes didn't go over too well. But anyway, let's go back to the tent sale. Every summer, Crow's Nest would have a tent sale. They'd erect a big tent in the parking lot and have, well, a sale under it. Things that were in the sale usually consisted of the leftover inventory from another record store that went out of business. Crow's Nest would buy all that inventory and resell it under the tent. It was rare that I actually found anything good under the tent, but I think it was more of a loss leader than anything else, because I, for one, and I'm sure many others, usually ended up going into the store afterwards and buying something from the store. But one year, I did find something that piqued my interest— an album called King of the Surf Guitar, the best of Dick Dale and the Deltones. It was on vinyl, compilation from uh, Rhino Records from 1986. Something about that name sounded familiar. Was this the guy that I heard of? So I looked at the back cover and I saw Miserloo and Let's Go Trippin'. Ah, it's the same guy. So uh, I bought it. The sunny, hot day was the perfect backdrop for the chiming, staccato, double-picked sounds. I was mesmerized. I had to learn how to play like that. I taught myself how to play guitar in 1987, and to this day, I can't play like Dick Dale. I don't know why. I can't figure it out. Oh, well, I might as well just leave it to the master, right? The bass and the drums were playing in perfect sync, and of course, that furious picking style. Wow. Miserloo, of course, was a standout track. But what really grabbed me was Hava Nagila. I remember in a previous episode, I believe it was chapter 6? I briefly implied how bar mitzvahs are much more fun than confirmations. <laughs> Dick Dale doing this tune just drives that home. A friend of mine found out I was getting into Dick Dale, so he lent me his CD copy of Dick Dale's 1994 album, Unknown Territory. Whoa, 30 years later, and the man still has it. By the way, this album also contains an arrangement of Hava Nagila, but it's nothing compared to the version he released in 1963. But still, I loved Unknown Territory. So I went out and I bought my own copy, along with his 1993 album Tribal Thunder and 1996's Calling Up Spirits, the latter including his own rendition of his late friend Jimi Hendrix's Third Stone from the Sun. Speaking of which, I should explain something kind of important, mainly for Beach Boys fans. In the mid-80s, there was a groundbreaking Beach Boys documentary released called The Beach Boys, An American Band. In that documentary, there's a short clip of the Jimi Hendrix Experience's original version of Third Stone from the Sun. Jimi says, you'll never hear surf music again. And because that clip appears in a portion of the documentary that discusses when the Beach Boys started to decline in popularity in 1967, especially when they were pulled out of the Monterey Pop Festival, people interpret that line to mean that Jimi was bashing the Beach Boys. 
Which is understandable because at the time he had also called the Beach Boys psychedelic barbershop. That was a time when they put out their album Smiley Smile, which consisted well, seemingly of a lot of weird vocal exercises. <laughs> So, of course, putting those two things together, many people thought that Jimmy was putting the Beach Boys down. The truth is, Jimmy was actually lamenting his friend Dick Dale, who at the time was suffering from cancer. And back then, cancer was practically a death sentence. But miraculously, as we probably know by now, Dick actually beat the cancer, and he lived more than 50 years after that, specifically until March 16th of this year. That's uh, 2019 for those of you listening in the future. Whenever I think of the Jimi Hendrix-Dick Dale connection, I'm reminded that both of these guitar legends were left-handed Fender players. Thankfully, I did get an opportunity to see Dick Dale before he died. It was late March 2001, and I worked for a PR firm that specialized in high-tech clients. One of our clients was exhibiting at the CTIA Wireless Conference in Las Vegas, and they requested my presence for on-site support. So, as I arrived at the Sands Convention Center... I overheard a rep from another exhibitor saying that they were able to get Dick Dale to make an appearance. Wait, what? I said, uh, sir, did you say Dick Dale is here? And he said, yes, he is. Hmm, could that be the same Dick Dale? No. So I said, Dick Dale, king of the surf guitar? The guy said, yep, come to our booth sometime. We can tell you where he's going to be. So later that morning during a lull, I went over to that company's booth and found out that Dick would be performing in kind of a, a, a rest area where people would have lunch, like a ways away from the main floor. So around lunchtime, there was another lull, so I excused myself and made my way down the long hallway to where the food was. And lo and behold, there's Dick Dale and his backup band, and they were performing in front of some classic cars, because of course they were. And I hear the unmistakable sound of his heavily reverbed Fender. Dick was in the middle of one of his well-known instrumentals, but I don't remember which one off the top of my head. He was acting a bit peculiar, though. He'd play a lick and then immediately mute his guitar strings and he'd roll his eyes. Something was clearly annoying him. So at one point between tunes, he said something that kind of explained what I was seeing. He said something along the lines of, I'm sorry, folks, but they asked me to keep the volume down so I don't disturb the exhibitors, so we're going to be kind of quiet. But if you really want to hear us rock out, come to Harrah's. We'll be performing there all next week. I thought that was weird, if not angering. The band was set up so far away from the exhibitors that they all could crank their amps to 11 and nobody in the main exhibitor hall would be able to hear a thing from them. You'd never know they were there. I don't know what was more angering, that or that the company who brought him over posted signs in the area saying, Dick Dale, rock guitar star from Pulp Fiction. Really? Oh, well. I stayed for maybe half an hour and listened to him perform a few more tunes before I returned to my client's booth. But in my education on the music of Dick Dale, I learned that Surfer's Choice, Dick Dale's debut album from 1962, was considered the quintessential surf music album, so I sought a copy out. That was back in the 90s, mind you, before the album was reissued on CD. I looked high and low for a copy of Surfer's Choice. None of the used record stores I frequented had it, nor did the cluster of record stores that existed on Clark Street in Chicago at the time. 
By the way, almost 25 years later, one of those stores is still there. I ended up ordering a copy from a vendor in Goldmine Magazine. I remember when the UPS guy delivered it, he correctly guessed it was a record. Turns out he was a record collector. I told him it was a Dick Dale album. He said, Surfer's Choice? I said, yeah. He said, well, the next time you want to order a used record, let me know before you go through that hassle. Turns out he actually had a couple of copies of Surfer's Choice, but uh, this was before online ordering was an easy thing, so keep that in mind. Uh, I never actually did reach out to him, though, but then again, I don't think I was ever looking to order a record album after that. Usually, I found what I wanted in the store, but regardless, Surfer's Choice, wow. I was actually, well, a little bit disappointed. It turned out that most of the standout tracks from the album were already on the Rhino compilation I bought, but still... I had an actual original Dick Dale album, and it's Surfer's Choice that really opened my eyes to what I call the Sloop John B myth. So what is this thing I call the Sloop John B myth? Well, it's actually in two parts. One part is actually proven to be false. The other part, not necessarily true, not necessarily false, the way I see it. Part one of the myth there's a long-standing story that the reason that Sloop John B. was included on the Beach Boys album Pet Sounds was that Capitol Records insisted that it be included because it was a hit single. Capitol said Sloop John B. is a hit, you gotta put it on the album. Brian Wilson didn't want it on. That was the story. Well, that's simply not true at all. Beach Boys researcher Brad Elliott located a handwritten memo from Brian Wilson dated February 1966 given to the suits at Capitol, with a preliminary track listing for the upcoming album that would be Pet Sounds. Interestingly, Good Vibrations, which was nowhere near being finished, was on that preliminary track list, as was Sloop John B. Remember, this was February. It turns out that the Sloop John B. single wouldn't even be released for another month, which means that Capitol couldn't possibly have demanded that the hit song be included because it wasn't a hit yet. They wouldn't know. In other words, Brian had planned for Sloop John B. to be on the album all along. Plus, it would not be the first time that a hit single by the Beach Boys would be on an album. In fact, I can only think of just one hit single they had that wasn't on an album. That was The Little Girl I Once Knew, at least up to that point. But as for part two of the Sloop John B. myth, well, I need to explain definitions of the word myth. Let me tell you what Merriam-Webster, the go-to dictionary people, say about the word myth. Definition 1A of myth is, and I quote, a usually traditional story of ostensibly historical events that serves to unfold part of the worldview of people or explain a practice, belief, or natural phenomenon. Definition 2A is, and again I quote, a popular belief or tradition that has grown up around something or someone. Neither of those definitions has any implication of something being true or false at all. Keep that in mind. The word false doesn't even occur until definition 2B, which is, and I quote, an unfounded or false notion. For my explanation of the Sloop John B. myth, at least part two of the Sloop John B. myth, I'm using the definitions that do not imply something false. So what's this myth as I see it? Part two of what I call the Sloop John B. myth is the story that has been repeated in Beach Boys history that the reason the Beach Boys recorded Sloop John B. is that Beach Boy Al Jardine, a lifelong folk music fan, told Brian Wilson that the Beach Boys should record it. Al particularly was a big fan of the Kingston Trio, 
and their version of the song was his main inspiration for this idea. Now, is that story true? It very well could be. The fact is, I don't know. I wasn't there when the conversation took place between those two Hawthorne High School grads. Heck, I wouldn't even be born for another nine years. But I do have an alternate theory. My theory is that the Beach Boys would have recorded Sloop John B. anyway with a Brian Wilson arrangement, regardless of whether Al Jardine said a peep. Allow me to explain. Sloop John B. was by far not an obscure song. I think the earliest known widespread publication of the song's lyrics was in a Harper's Monthly Magazine article from the December 1916 issue. The article was called Coral Islands and Mangrove Trees, and it was written by Richard Le Gallienne, pardon my French. Judging from the context of the article, the song likely had already been somewhat well-known. I will link the article in the online bibliography, of course. Perhaps more famously, a transcription of a version of the song that had both words and sheet music appeared in Carl Sandburg's 1927 book, The American Songbag, and of course, that will also be linked in the online bibliography. In both instances, the song is referred to as the John B. Sales. In terms of audio recordings, by the time Brian Wilson had recorded his arrangement of Sloop John B. in July 1965, more than a dozen versions had been released on record under various titles since 1935, including by such performers as Lonnie Donegan, The Weavers, Johnny Cash, Jimmy Rogers, Jerry Butler, The Brothers Four, and most recently at that point, Barry McGuire. And that's just a select few artists who've covered the song at that point. So it shows that then, in Brian Wilson's life, he had a lot of opportunity to be exposed to the song. And you know what? He absolutely was exposed to the song because he had actually performed it on several occasions. Jim Murphy's incredibly well-researched book, Becoming the Beach Boys, talks about at least one occasion, probably more, I don't remember, um, and uh, I'm too lazy to look through the book, but trust me, it's in there. But it talks about the times Brian put together a singing group to sing Sloop John B. at a school assembly. And in 2007, a two-CD bootleg called In the Beginning, the Garage Tapes included a recording of Brian leading an unnamed female singer through Sloop John B., and that's from around 1961, give or take. But let's take things back to Surfer's Choice, the debut album of Dick Dale and his Deltones. Refreshing your memory, that record included Let's Go Trippin' and Miserloo Twist, both of which were covered on the Beach Boys' second album, Surfin' USA the first album in which Brian Wilson was allowed to call most of the shots. Also on Surfer's Choice is a remake of blues singer Buster Brown's Fannie Mae. In fact, let's listen to a few seconds of Dick Dale's version. Sound familiar? No? Well, okay, then let's listen to a few seconds of a Beach Boys track from 1965. How do you see the connection there? We have session musician Billy Lee Riley playing the harmonica on the Beach Boys' first recorded version of Help Me Rhonda, lifting the Fannie Mae riff from Dick Dale's version. And yes, blues fans, I know that Buster Brown's version also had harmonica, but the harmonica on that version was much different, had a much more bluesier feel to it. 
the Billy Lee Riley harmonica lines are most definitely taken from the Dick Dale version. And for those of you who are familiar with the song Help Me Rhonda, but you're scratching your heads over what you just heard, doesn't sound familiar, you're probably unaware of this, but the Beach Boys actually recorded and released the song twice in 1965. The version you're likely to be familiar with, which went to number one, is not the version with the harmonica. Uh, fun fact, by the way, the more intense Beach Boys fans indicate which Help Me Rhonda they're talking about by the spelling. The first version the band released was actually misspelled as R-O-N-D-A on the record label, while the hit version was actually spelled correctly, R-H-O-N-D-A. But anyway, having said all that, that brings the count of three different tracks recorded by the Beach Boys that have some influence from the Surfer's Choice album. Now, do we all have a copy of Surfer's Choice handy? Good. Now, look at the track list. Uh, if you uh, don't have a copy handy, just hit pause and either get a copy or look up the track listing on your favorite search engine, then resume the podcast. Look at what the second track on side one is. I sailed on the slip, John, my grandfather and me. Whoa, it's uh, Sloop John B. And let me remind you, Let's Go Trippin', recorded by the Beach Boys, released on their Surfin' USA album. Miserloo Twist, recorded by the Beach Boys. Well, okay, the version they recorded was actually the Dick Dale single version, but still, there is a version of Miserloo on Surfer's Choice. The Beach Boys covered Miserloo and released it also on their Surfin' USA album. Fannie Mae, the very prominent harmonica line, was included on Help Me Rhonda, the version the Beach Boys released on their first album of 1965 called The Beach Boys Today. So that's essentially three examples of how aware of Surfer's Choice the Beach Boys were. And then, of course, there's Sloop John B. The Beach Boys version of Sloop John B. was released as a single on March 21st, 1966, and on the Pet Sounds album on May 16th that same year. And let me remind you, the common lore among Beach Boys fans was that Brian Wilson put together an arrangement of Sloop John B. for the Beach Boys to record at the urging of Al Jardine, who was a big fan of the Kingston Trio, whose version of the song Al liked quite a lot. That story comes from Al Jardine himself. And Brian Wilson himself has confirmed it on a few occasions. That's the myth. Mind you, I'm going by the Webster's definitions that do not necessarily imply that while I call this a myth, I'm not saying it's false. I'm absolutely willing to believe that Al went to Brian and suggested they do the song, but I'm convinced that Brian always had it in mind to record it. And evidence to perhaps support my theory that it was always Brian's intention to record Sloop John B. anyway? Well, for one thing, the Kingston Trio's version was given the title... The Wreck of the John B., with the words The Wreck of the in parentheses and John B. in quote marks. The Beach Boys version was called Sloop John B. on the label, just as Dick Dale's version was. Maybe Al never did suggest Sloop John B. to Brian at all. Maybe he's confusing it with Huddy Ledbetter's Cotton Fields, which he also took to Brian, who then worked up an arrangement that the Beach Boys recorded, this time with Al singing lead. Um, Brian actually sang lead on Sloop John B. along with Mike Love, by the way. You'd think that if Al truly was the catalyst behind the group doing Sloop John B., he would have been the one to sing it. Heck, Al didn't even sing lead on that song when the Beach Boys went on the road without Brian. Carl Wilson took the lead on it in concerts. The version of Cotton Fields arranged and produced by Brian Wilson was released on the Beach Boys' 2020 album, February 10th, 1969. It
In August of 1969, the Beach Boys recorded Cotton Fields again, but this time under the direction of Al Jardine himself because he wasn't fully satisfied with Brian's version. And that re-recorded version was a pretty big hit all around the world, except for the United States. When I was a little bitty baby, my mama done rocked me in the cradle. In them old, old cotton fields back home. Oh, by the way, fun fact for you. Among the musicians on that version of Cotton Fields were Daryl Dragon, also known as the Captain from the Captain and Tennille. He played keyboards. And the steel guitar was played by Red Rhodes, who would later play on almost every Michael Nesmith album from 1970 until Red's death in 1995. But there you go, just to sum up my theory. Sloop John B. was always on Brian's mind to record, and he would have made an arrangement for the Beach Boys at some point, regardless of Al Jardine suggesting it to him. And perhaps Al Jardine didn't actually suggest Sloop John B. at all, but he got it confused with Cotton Fields or else, why did Al never sing lead on Sloop John B. at any time during his tenure with the Beach Boys? Again, it's just a theory. I have no definitive facts to back it up, just something to think about. I wouldn't say I'm questioning Al, especially since Brian backs him up on that whole story. But still, memories of a song recorded way back in 1965 could become foggy over time. After all, Al said that Brian's arrangement has a minor chord that's not in the earlier versions of the song. And it was pointed out on the Sail On podcast recently that the chord actually is in earlier versions. In fact, it's even in the Carl Sandburg printed version. So we already see there's something factually wrong in Al's version of the story. So who's to say something else is an incorrect? But once again, I must emphasize this is only a theory. I am not presenting it as fact. It is just an observation. Uh, you hear that, Beach Boys lawyers? I'm not trying to defame Al Jardine or anybody else. I'm not trying to downplay Al's contributions to the group, especially because he certainly was responsible for one of the best singles in the group's catalog. Listen to the Al Jardine-produced version of Cotton Fields and try to count how many asses it kicks. And he certainly has a hell of a good singing voice, too, as evidenced by Help Me Rhonda, Cotton Fields, I Know There's an Answer, Susie Cincinnati, and it goes on. Just about any song he sang lead on with the group. There are many, many more than what I've mentioned. And to this day, he can still sing like nobody's business. He took good care of himself over the years. He never smoked. He never did drugs. So his singing voice from way back then is still almost fully intact. He wrote some pretty cool songs, too, especially the lyrics, as evidenced by California Saga and Santa Ana Winds. And of course, listen to the Brian Wilson-produced Sloop John B. It probably kicks just as many asses as the Al Jardine-led version of Cotton Fields regardless of whether Sloop John B. happened because of Al Jardine. You know, the more I think about it, the more convinced I am that it was not Sloop John B. that Al urged Brian to arrange for the Beach Boys, but Cotton Fields. That minor chord thing about Sloop John B. sticks out for me. Yes, many versions of this song prior to the one recorded by the Beach Boys have that minor chord that Al Jardine claimed to have had. But you know what? 
The Al Jardine-produced version of Cotton Fields does indeed have a minor chord that is not present in other versions, Just about a mile from including by the Highwaymen and Johnny Cash. It was down in Louisiana, just about a mile from Texarkana. In and Creedence Clearwater Revival. It was down in Louisiana, just about a mile from Texarkana. In old... um, sorry about this sudden last-minute interjection, but Lead Belly's original version also does not have that minor chord in it. It was down in Louisiana, just a mile from Texarkana. In fact, not even the Brian Wilson-produced version of Cotton Fields has that chord. So this basically lends more support to my theory that all along Al's been thinking of Cotton Fields. And by the way, I mentioned that Cotton Fields was a hit for the Beach Boys almost everywhere but the United States. One big reason for that is the Beach Boys were leaving Capitol Records, and the single essentially was a contractual obligation. The band had sued the label over royalty disputes, and that, combined with their impending exit, didn't make Capitol exactly enthusiastic to promote the single. No promotion, no hit. Because Cotton Fields was a hit in so many other places, it was actually included on the British pressing of their next album, Sunflower, which itself was a great enough album as it was. It didn't even need Cotton Fields, but hey, it only made it better. And poor Dick Dale, man. Last I heard before he died was that he was literally touring just to stay alive so he could afford medical treatment that he absolutely needed. It was a life-or-death situation. But judging from the videos I've seen, he still played a killer guitar right up to the end. One other thing I remember, by the way, about seeing him in Vegas was that he mentioned that he personally responded to all emails. He said, my email address is on my website. If you email me, I'll write back to you personally. I don't have my staff do that on my behalf because, well, it's a personal thing. And if you take the time to write me, I'll take the time to write you. I thought that was really cool. I never did email him, though. Hmm. But that, my friends, is Chapter 8 of Autobiography of a Schnook. And thank you all again for listening and again for your kind words. And please leave a review of this podcast wherever you get it from. iTunes, Google Play, wherever. Leave a review because reviews help spread the word about the podcast. As always, my undying thanks to Lisa for her support and encouragement. And if you're looking for something schnooky to do between now and the next chapter, well, you can go to schnookpodcast.com. And uh, there is a link to a Redbubble store where you can buy schnook paraphernalia. And you can also donate to this podcast. And any income that comes through, either through Redbubble or through the donate button on the website, goes directly into the podcast itself. Whether it be domain name renewal, which is actually coming up soon. Wow. Equipment upgrades, all that good stuff. That's what it goes to. It does not go to line my pockets at all. But I guess uh, I'm out of here for now and reminding you, as always, that the good goes around. Even if you're on the worst trip since you've been born. Gil Bell. Memories of the class of 94. Uh, January 32nd would be a very special day to me. Um, the Yokozuna look at practice. Um, trying to get the last word with Kelly, which was always a challenge. 
um, and probably using a hot glue gun for the first time, fixing Richie's horse and all the little toys on the desk. Uh, those would be my, my best memories of this class. And where I'll be in 10 years, I hope I'm uh, laying on a beach in the Bahamas somewhere, um, living off the $1,000 that all the millionaires sent me over the years. <laughs>